0: This is Andrew Hall. You're listening to Dead Hand Radio, a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My guest for this episode is author, researcher, and podcaster Matthew Kressel. His areas of study include Cold War history, space travel, science fiction, and ufology. And his new book, The Silver Archive No. 5 dark skies takes a comprehensive look at the 1990s tv series dark skies on this episode of dead hand radio matt and i talk about his book the cold war the space program and share some thoughts about ufos past present and future Hey Matt, how you doing? I'm doing just fine, sir. Uh, first of all, is that okay if I call you Matt? Yes, that is fine. Okay. <laughs> if you, I don't want to be uh, informal. If you'd prefer to be formal, so
1: uh, Matt Matthew uh, it's, these days is pretty interchangeable. So okay,
0: cool. Yeah, and I, I, I'm I'm pretty easygoing, man. This is uh, not really a formal conversation or interview, if you. If you think of it like that, it might make things more complicated. It's just I am a geek about the Cold War and I love to talk to people who have who share that interest.
1: Oh. Sounds fun. I mean I, I meant to check out a couple of episodes of the show and I'm I'm sad to say I haven't yet. So it's something I'll definitely do once we get
0: done talking. I am crushed. How could you not listen? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Uh, So, uh, yeah, usually, and you know, you, you can see the notes there. So I I pretty much, I don't read off the notes as a, as if it were a script, but it keeps me on track. Um, but, uh, I usually do quite a bit of research on my guests before I bring them onto the show and interview them. In your case, I had a really tough time finding information about you on the internet. Oh, my plan has worked. Then my plan uh, has worked. So you're trying to be invisible?
1: <laughs> um, not quite. I mean, I was. Uh, I I was kind of surprised. I got bored recently as, as you sometimes do and you just kind of google your name and i was surprised by uh by some of the things that did turn up and how little did turn up so i'd have at least sent you a bio or you know something if i'd realized there was so little out there
0: you can still send that to me that'd be fine um but uh hey this this is going to make for an interesting conversation because it's going to be a getting to know you type of thing and you know, I'm always open to if guests have questions for me. I'm open to answering questions as well. Excellent. Um, but I, I noticed a lot of stuff about Doctor Who. Uh, yes, when I when I googled your name out there.
1: Yeah, that was that seems to be the main focus of my writing. Um, a lot of the time, as I have written an awful lot about that particular show um, in the last. God, 13, 14 years since I got into it. And in a funny way, Doctor Who is what led to my writing The Dark Skies book.
0: Cool. Well, that leads me to an interesting um, connection that we share outside of Cold War and UFOs. And that is time travel. I'm not a big Doctor Who fan, so I'll throw that out there as a disclaimer. I don't know that much about the show. I've never seen an episode
1: Oh, you're missing out, man. You're missing but, out.
0: But I do know it's about time travel. That much I do know.
1: And yes. um,
0: I, I time travel as a as a topic of science fiction has always fascinated me. And one of my guests on this podcast is a guy named Marshall Barnes. And he's a a researcher and an engineer. And he feels that he can actually, eventually, and he's and he's pretty close to to, to discovering time travel, and he'll have a, a way for humans to travel back in time in the very near future.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, you should check out that episode, man. He's an interesting dude. dude.
1: I will have to check that out. I
0: think that's episode number one. Okay so, yeah, if you start at the beginning and listen to all my episodes, it'll take you probably about two days uh because there's not a lot of episodes, but my episodes do go kinda long
1: well, you know it's it's quality over quantity
0: <laughs> oh well, a little both i mean i <laughs> my my episodes go long, and the quantity is or the i guess I guess the quantity. The number of shows is not a lot, but the length of the shows is really, you know, pretty good yeah. pretty good length.
1: Yeah, one of the Doctor Who podcasts I pop up on from time to time, the, the average episode of it's I think about two hours. So
0: mm, okay. Uh unfortunately I probably won't be listening to any of those because that's quite all right. <laughs> Doctor Who just never really interested me. Yeah. Um
1: I, I was like it's an acquired taste.
0: I guess. Yeah, that's what a lot of people say. And people ha, people laugh at me because I'm a big science fiction fan. I'm a big fan of Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, all the 70s um cuz that's really when I grew up was in the 70s. Mm. But the uh the British science fiction I never just never really got into it.
1: Interesting. I mean, I was I was born in eighty eight, so I can come to a lot of this stuff retroactively, for lack of a better way to put it. I just I just sort of I think part of it too is I just have a general interest in, and in, well, I think the Brits like to term archive TV, so I watch a lot of older stuff simply out of interest, oh, cool. you know, and enjoying it as well. So,
0: yeah, and uh, you know, since we're on that topic, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your background, if you don't mind. Sure um so you say you grew up in 80 or you were born in 88 so you grew up in the more more or less in the 90s which i mean the cold war was winding down at that time um so where where is it that you did grow up i
1: grew up uh around huntsville alabama where i still live today so for those who don't know it's home to nasa's marshall space flight center where the Saturn V rockets used in the Apollo program were developed and designed. And it's also home to the U.S. Army's Redstone Arsenal, both very big today. And we also have the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, uh, which is like a home away from home for me because I spent so much time there as a kid. Um, it's also the only place in the world with two Saturn V rockets, as a matter of fact. Oh, so, they still
0: have those? They they yeah, still
1: Yeah, there were three Saturn V, there were two test flight Saturn Vs that didn't fly as part of Apollo, and they are on display in Florida and Texas. And what we have here, we have something that's called the flight dynamic test model. So it's basically a Saturn V in full configuration and whatnot, but it's not flight worthy, so to speak. But it has... All of the characteristics, all of the engine parts and whatnot to do it. Um, There's some amusing footage on YouTube for anybody who ever gets bored and wants to look for it. This was the one that in 66, 67, they actually assembled it in the vehicular Assembly Building down at the Cape. And they actually put the thing, took the thing out to the launch pad put the thing in place, and literally got, I don't know, two dozen guys around the bottom of it, and they literally shook the thing in place to make sure that when the engines lit up on the Saturn V when it launched, the thing wouldn't completely come apart. Um, So we have that, and we also have a a 1-1 scale full-size replica of it that was um, built in '99 for the 30th anniversary of Apollo
0: 11. Cool. So is it like a museum out there that you can go visit? Yeah
1: it's a it is a very sizable museum out here um where it's a smithsonian affiliate as a matter of fact so if you're if you're a space geek i highly recommend it and it's also because it's uh, built on land that was actually taken out of the redstone arsenal was actually donated as from what i recall from the u.s army so there's quite a bit of um cold war there's some cold war stuff out there as well there's some Uh, army missiles and a huey helicopter and a army mini submarine that was used to recover missile wreckage as well so that was uh, that's kind of my background i mean talking about me and the cold war i was born a year and a day before the berlin wall came down and there's a sort of a story in the family about my first birthday party being kind of interrupted by the news coverage of the Berlin wall coming down because in the middle of celebrating my first birthday, they, somebody got a phone call from somebody and they went and turned on the TV to watch the live coverage coming over, I guess on CNN or whatever.
0: That's cool. That's a cool story. So your, your first birthday, so you were born a year and a day before the, the, Berlin wall before, came down
1: before the wall came down, um, election day 1988 to be precise as, as my parents like to say it's the only election the presidential election they haven't voted in in their lifetimes for obvious reasons.
0: Yeah and then so uh, Berlin wall comes down and your birthday is interrupted. I mean do you have any inkling of a memory of that or is it just stories from the It's family?
1: just it's just stories. I mean I, I have some memories from when I was a little kid, but that is that is not one of them. Um, But I suspect because I was a, I was a space geek like practically from coming out of the womb. I don't know where my interest in all things space and NASA came from, but I, I grew up around that. I spent a lot of time as a kid and as a young adult at the Space and Rocket Center, um, to the point that there's pictures of me toting around a stuffed animal I had when I was a little kid going around to the various exhibits and whatnot that my parents still have. Uh, so it was like a home away from home for me, and. My, And my interest in all things space eventually kind of went over, I guess, into the Cold War because so much of what was exhibits there, so stuff from Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, even the shuttle to an extent, you know, was all formed around the Cold War. So as a kid, I would hear all these things about, you know, the Cold War and the space race and Sputnik and all this. And my interest eventually carried over and I sort of grew out of that a wider interest in, in the Cold War.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's impossible to separate the space race from the Cold War. They were integral with one another. Indeed. Uh, in fact, I don't think there would have been a space race if there wasn't a Cold War.
1: Yeah, I don't think there would have been either. I mean, it's interesting if you look at like 50 science fiction, for example, and there's a book by Arthur C. Clarke called Prelude to Space that I read on Kindle earlier this year. I mean, he was predicting that they wouldn't get the first missions into space wouldn't happen until the 1970s and 1980s. Um, because there was just no impetus to do it, you know, in terms of spurring on the technological development and the spending of expenditure really that would, to justify it.
0: Yeah. How else could you justify that kind of expense? Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, you just really can't. Yeah. Um, Although if you know, you were to ask me, I would say put more money into space even now (laughs) because What's out there is way more interesting than what's right here,
1: yeah, you get you'll get no argument from me on there, I, you know yeah you know, i I am a lifelong proud NASA supporter, you know i was I was one of those kids who really wanted to be an astronaut um, until uh, bad eyesight, flat feet, and typoglycemia got in the way um, so it 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 turns out I am the last person you want to put on top of a rocket.
0: <laughs> well, who knows, you may get your opportunity, man. Uh, I
1: may, you know, it's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. You know, we just, uh, just a couple days ago, of course, the first SpaceX Crew Dragon splashed down with, you know, astronauts on board. That uh, was very
0: um, cool. I watched that uh, live on YouTube.
1: Yes, I did too. That was, it was awesome. Just, it, it was incredible to watch. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of weird to think. In some ways, I think Arthur C. Clarke talked about around the time of the 20th and 25th anniversaries of the moon landing so that would have been 89 and 94 that in some respects what had to happen was the technology had to catch up with the ambitions because that was kind of part of the problem was it was you know so much time and money had been thrown at getting to the moon first that even though there was an infrastructure for how to do it it was still you know in the minds of people in the late 60s early 70s it was insanely expensive Mm-hmm. um so you kind of had to go back and build an infrastructure that was you know cheaper if nothing else um but i you know i it is one of the great tragedies of recent american history that apollo was kind of abandoned when it was because we were you know the infrastructure was in place yes it was expensive but you know the the entire cost of apollo from the early 60s into the 1970s cost less than a year of the vietnam war did in its height and I would argue we probably got a lot more out of Apollo than we did out of going into Vietnam. Uh,
0: you get an argument from me <laughs> on that, man. That's a that's a good point. I would I would say though that the the space shuttle, though there it yielded some positive results. I think that was the wrong direction for the space program to go.
1: Yeah, you you get no argument from me there. Yeah, I,
0: mean, I, I think that was a a. a way too expensive for what it um what it actually you know the what the investment yielded mm. um, versus sending up many many more rockets would have done yeah
1: i mean it was it was a spacecraft designed by committee let's be perfectly honest and it, okay. it you know people and forget, never
0: goes well right
1: yeah and it didn't go well i mean the whole thing was the kind of this product of i think some of there's some documentary evidence for it as well that nixon really wanted to kill manned spaceflight after apollo um my own personal feeling is he was still sore about it being so associated with the kennedys um that he he just about killed manned spaceflight in 1972 and it was actually casper weinberger who was um later became secretary of state not secretary of state excuse me secretary of defense under ronald reagan that who basically sent this memo to the white house and said think about the loss of technology and the loss of international prestige if we just stop and the shuttle was basically the cheapest option out of this big blueprint that nasa had come up with thomas who was the administrator at the time of apollo 11 had dreamt up this great vision of what we could do and it involved space stations and a moon base and going to Mars in the 1980s and indeed a space shuttle to get to the space station. I mean, the biggest problem with the shuttle um, is the simple fact that it didn't have anywhere to go. It was a, It was a craft without a destination um saturday night live did a sketch years ago making fun of the hbo miniseries from the earth to the moon and they did it about the shuttle and they called it from the earth to the area around the earth uh and um uh, it's on a it's on an episode that uh, david dacofney hosted so from the late 90s and if you can find the sketch on youtube it's worth watching i am such a nerd um But that was the you know the shuttle the shuttle was an amazing piece of technology and an incredible flying machine to be sure. But fundamentally, the idea behind the shuttle was it would make getting into space, it would make you know it would be cheaper, it would be more accessible, we could do more. And you know the shuttle program ran for thirty years, and we are no we were no closer to the moon. We were definitely we were no closer to Mars. We were nowhere near fulfilling the visions of what a lot of people thought we would do in the late sixties, early seventies.
0: I think the probably one of the good or the best ideas that came out of the space shuttle was having reusable equipment, reusable mm. vehicles. Uh, and even though the, the, uh, rockets that they used were not reusable, uh, at least the vehicle itself was, the craft itself was reusable.
1: Yeah. I mean, the ironic thing about the shuttle was, is that by the, yeah you know, the shuttle was there to replace the Saturn V really, because the Saturn V was oh so expensive to launch, at least according to the Nixon administration and members of Congress of both parties. The ironic thing is, is that by the time the shuttle retired adjusted for inflation, it cost more to launch than a Saturn V did. And it could not, it, didn't have anywhere near the lifting capability or indeed the ability to get humans from the earth to the moon or anywhere else in the solar system
0: for that matter right right well and the advancements that we've seen just in the last decade with the mm. uh with the reusable rockets and the um that test that they did the other day did you see that one with the starship
1: I did. Wasn't yes. that, cra- I-
0: that was like watching a building Lift off the ground with rockets and move what 50 meters or so,
1: yeah. It was, I think it was about 500 feet, Five, yeah. uh, 500 feet up, and I can't remember how you know direction horizontally, yeah. but it's it's like something out of science fiction. It
0: was crazy looking, yeah. It was just so so fascinating to see this new surge in the you know, the uh, I don't know if it, it was correctly be termed a space race because it, it, even though. We're working um not in concert with China Russia, even the european space agency um you know it's we're not directly in competition with them i guess uh, unless i mean unless you see it that way uh, i mean it's
1: it's it's a space race light in many respects i mean um you know the Chinese are very clear that their intention is to is to build a moon base and to get uh, and to get to Mars eventually, and you know that's been their, that's been their timetable for quite a while now. Um, you know, and there's you know the Russians, the Russians have been trying to do stuff independently. In the mid 2000s, they were developing at uh, Energia the stuff for a Russian Mars mission um and never quite could get off the gra- get it off the ground and indeed one of the one of the interesting things is that if the cold war hadn't ended if the soviet union hadn't come apart at the end of the 80s early 90s you know the russians did have very serious plans for martian flybys in the 1990s using you know the same technology the, the whole you know the technology from mir because the whole point of the mir space station was to develop the long duration space flight knowledge and experience to eventually do
0: interplanetary travel.
1: And it just, you know, things fell apart for lack of a better way of putting it.
0: Well, there's, there was a documentary. I was just watching a couple of days ago about that, about the, the Russian space program and what the, uh, you know, it could have been propaganda, who knows, but the, they're, argument was that the Russian space program, although they made significant milestones, their technology was not advancing. They were using the same technology and just achieving new goals with the same technology.
1: Yeah, I mean that's not. I don't think that's a controversial opinion. I mean, there's there's a cult War group I'm a member of on Facebook, and occasionally a meme will pop up of all the Russian space firsts, and then you know Americans being the first to the moon. It's like how did America win the space race? And you have to explain that very fact to people that you know the first you know the craft that was used for the Voshkod missions. Which is the first three-person crew and the first spacewalk, was basically Vostok, which was the one-person spacecraft they had built before then, and it's basically the same tech. No, it was the same technology. It was the reason the Russians ultimately lost the race to the moon. Um, that and the death of Sergei Korolev, who was their chief designer, was the fact that the Russian technology couldn't keep up with what we were doing, and they also just didn't have the experience with rendezvous and docking to be able to do it. I mean, the Russian space program is fascinating anyways, because it was, you know, we talk, we were just talking about the shuttle being designed by committee. I mean, the Russian space program was very much a committee-led effort. Uh, you know, you had, you had Korolev at the top, who was the chief designer, but even he was taking orders from uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev to actually make things work. And indeed, a lot of the reasons why the Russians had so many space firsts was because the Kremlin you know anecdotally speaking the kremlin would call and be like you know uh, the premier would like you to put the first woman in space you have six months get to you know get to work get to work and you know hang up the phone and go well how the blank are we going to do this um so that you know the russians yeah, had a lot of the first but technologically they were behind the ball to a large extent. I mean, you look at the N1, which was their Saturn V equivalent, and instead of building the massive F1 engines that we used on the Saturn V, the Russians just decided, well, we've got a bunch of smaller engines that work. So instead of developing big engines, we're just going to put a whole bunch of small engines. I mean, the N1's first stage alone had something like 30 engines on it. And that was the reason why the thing never successfully flew. I think there were three launches of it. And not one of them ever reached orbit i think the most successful of them lasted about 75 seconds and again it's the problems of running 30 engines all at the same time and if any more than one or two of those engines go out you are in serious trouble and indeed there was a launch of the n1 that happened just before apollo 11 like three weeks before the apollo 11 launch where the thing barely got off the pad and it was something like eight or ten engines shut down and the whole thing just came right back down on the launch pad and blew up with the force of a force of a small nuclear weapon to the point that when the corona spy satellite flew over later and the cia's photo analysts got it back they seriously thought a, you know, a nuclear bomb had gone off at the in the middle of kazakhstan because that was what it looked like um so, I mean, the Russians, the Russians were first in a lot of things. And it has to be said, you know, if you look at like Soyuz, for example, um, Soyuz is still flying after, you know, 55 years almost. I mean, the first flight of it was in 67, went horribly wrong, but to their credit, they learned their lessons from that first Soyuz flight. But, you know, that the technology from that worked. and I think the Russian mentality when it's come to a lot of space hardware has been, if it's not broken, don't fix it.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's well, because they don't have the same amount of capital to throw at the, at their space program that we do. So hmm. they have to, they have to scrimp and cut where they can yeah. so that they can still continue to compete.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not only uh, the capital to throw at, but it was the the technology for that matter. I mean, um trying to think of what it was you know if you look at uh baron which was the so- the soviet equivalent to the space shuttle that flew i mean you look you can google pictures of it online it looks just like looks like the Amer- our space shuttle here and i would not be surprised if it turned out that they got their hands on a fairly complete set of blueprints and basically decided they were just going to build a replica of it um you know, they couldn't keep up technologically with us. And that was a big part of their problem as well. And that was true across a lot of things, but especially in computing. Uh, there's a wonderful book uh, called Red Plenty, and I'm blanking on the name of the author, but he's British. And it's kind of a semi nonfiction, semi fictional. And it's about the, sort of the Khrushchev era when there was a real genuine idea that by 1980, the Soviet Union was going to overtake the United States in the West in terms of its GDP and its you know, industrial development, and looking at exactly how that fell apart. And the simple answer to that is, is that for all the central planning the Russians did, there was no way to manually sit down and come up with all the calculations and all of the variables and all of the data and do the number crunching to make it work. And, you know, the Russians invested actually in their own supercomputer programs, at least what for the time would have been considered supercomputers. And the basic problem is, is that because they were so technologically behind, you know, they were a good five to ten years behind the West and the United States in terms of computer technology, which is part of the reason why they couldn't keep up. And they were reliant, in fact, on a lot of industrial espionage to keep it going. Christopher Andrew, who's the um, great historian of Cold War espionage at Cambridge University, once said that the Soviet Union, after the Second World War, was as powerful as it was because of the ability to get weapons information and technological information out of the West back to the Soviet Union where they could copy it. But they were always going to be that little bit behind.
0: Were, did you become interested in science fiction first or in the actual space program itself?
1: Oh, d- d- I think from at a very young age the two were kind of inseparable in my head. I suspect. I suspect one led to the other. It's the chicken and the egg, but I can't tell you which one came first. But I was I was the weird kind of kid who my parents would go to the local public library here and check out VHS tapes, and I was as content to sit down and watch episodes of star trek you know the classic star trek from the 60s i was i was a big fan of that as was my dad it was one of the things we bonded over uh funnily enough was our was uh star trek but i was also content to sit there and watch nasa documentaries that the library had so my parents would you know i would sit there and watch an episode of star trek and then i would be very happy to watch you know something about the apollo 15 mission or the space shuttle um so one kind of led to the other in a very kind of weird way. And I think as I got older, you know, you can you can separate fact, fact from fiction. But from a young age, I think it was, if it was space, I was interested in it. Um, as, as I got into kind of, I think we would term it today young adult. As I got into that point, I got started, I was getting very interested in history, uh, which is where my interest in the Cold War came from. But I was interested in sort of American history in general, but a real big focus on the cold war um the history channel at that point was still showing you know history programming and i can remember begging my parents to let me stay up late to watch documentaries on the history channel um there was a book called blind man's bluff about cold war submarine espionage came out in the late 90s i was about 10 or 11 and I remember begging my parents to stay up to actually watch that and to get to record it on VHS. And I watched the heck out of that.
0: Wow.
1: Um, and eventually, you know, as I got a little bit older, I was, I was, I was reading at a quite a high reading level for somebody who was my age. I was reading on a high school reading level at like 10 or 11. Um, so I was, I would, my parents would take me to the library and I'd go over, wander over, you know, do do a search for various topics and walk out of the library with a stack of books that were, you know, adult reading and would sit there and read it and comprehend it and want to have conversations with it. And I think one of my frustrations about, were about growing up when I did where I did was I didn't have very many people to talk to about that. Um, I, was a, I was a very, very nerdy child with, who, I mean, who didn't have a lot of friends as a result it's i probably made it sound worse than it was i you know i was i was frequently bullied i'll put it that way but it wasn't a it wasn't an incredibly lonely depressing childhood by any means but it was very much you know i had friends i had people i, I could play with and talk to and whatnot um funnily enough when i really wanted to talk history and stuff i would you know yap the ears off my history teachers And I was kind of blessed in middle school and early high school by history teachers who were willing to put up with what I'm sure was a, you know, very talkative, quite precocious, you know, youngster who had a real passion and interest in it. Um, And it just kind of blossomed from there, really. Um, I didn't get to go to college, sadly. And I kind of regret that because I'd i love to have focused on history but I have no idea what I would have done with a history degree because I would have been useless as a high school history coach as a high school history teacher turned sports coach I would yeah. be absolutely useless well I, because
0: really what can you do with a history degree other than historian or you know yeah. teacher college professor or a writer which mm. is I mean what do, you do, what do you do for work right now
1: I am a seller uh at a college funnily enough i work at a college bookstore okay. um so i i sort of view myself as contributing to the education of others and i guess getting the education i unfortunately didn't get to have um but that, that's a whole story for another time uh but i you know i i enjoy the job but it, it's afforded me a lot of opportunities to chat with people who think i have to think i have a degree that i don't have a degree um which is all which I always find funny because I've I've sat there and yapped off the ears of, uh, history students and history professors who want to know what what I what my what, you know where did you get your deg- where did you go to school from what's your degree in, you know, what was your thesis about it's just kind of like I don't have any of that.
0: So much emphasis is put on those accolades that, you know, it it's that's that's the focus for education is to get that piece of paper that says you completed it. Yeah. And where that's a mistake is that you tend to gloss over a lot of the important details and facts that somebody with a passion like yours is going to retain because you do it because of, of the love of the topic, not mm. because you're trying to get a piece of paper. So, I mean, hats off to you. I don't have a college degree either, but I've gone to college off and on to learn an, a new skill uh, when I wanted to but uh, never had the discipline to stay with college long enough to get a degree.
1: I, did. I think that was part of my thing too, is I'm not sure. I was one of those students where if it was a class, a class at a subject I was passionate in, I did really well. But if it was something that I had no interest in or no aptitude for, I, I did terrible with it. I mean, I, I, the way I sort of talk about my, my sort of past is, is when people ask me about high school and I tell them, well, I did great in English and history. Unfortunately, I bombed high school math like the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, uh, which is to say completely, totally and utterly.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you can join my club because I did not do well in math either.
1: Uh, that makes <clears throat> me feel better.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was not good at math, but I was really good at history. Loved history. And that's because I had a teacher in high school who made history so interesting uh, that I couldn't get enough of it. I guess we'll skip ahead right now and talk about your your book and your series of books, because um, I couldn't find all your books, but I did see that there were several books in a series that you've written
1: well, uh, I've only written I've only written one of the books in the series. Oh, um, really? Oh. Yeah, it's okay. a it's a series that's sort of written by a bunch of people. That's um, for those who don't know. It's the Silver Archive from uh, Obverse Books, which is based out of the UK, and it kind of spun off. Funnily enough, talking about Doctor Who, it the Obverse had done a very successful series of books called the Black Archive, which is named after. Uh, something on the TV show Doctor Who, which is basically a British equivalent to Area 51, but I digress. Uh, the idea of those books was that they were taking, because Doctor Who's run for 50 odd years at this point, and the idea was is that there was there'd been quite a bit written about it, but the idea was you could take a Serial from Classicus, which is 1963 to 89, or an episode or two from the current run of the show that started in 2005. And you could do kind of a critical analysis essay looking at the themes and the production of it and what the story was about and reception to it and, you know, anything and everything. Um, and that had been very successful. And Stuart Douglas, who runs Obverse, Looked at what the wider world of what the British call cult TV. So it's anything that kind of had a has a very loyal following. It may not have run very long. Uh, it may have run for years and has just dropped out of popularity. But things that had a certain audience for them that could stand up to a certain analysis. And having done the Black Archive, they simply decided to call it the Silver Archive. So other authors in the range have written about a uh, a series from the late 70s, early 80s called Sapphire and Steel, for example. And there's a book on Stranger Things, uh, the first season of it that was written by a buddy of mine. And there's a whole series of books coming out about uh, various different shows. Uh, another buddy of mine, Robert Smith, is writing a book about Millennium, which was kind of an X-Files spinoff that ran on Fox in the mid-late 90s.
0: Yeah, I saw, saw the, uh, I don't know if, was that a one season show? I, think it, I can't remember if it was two or three. Oh, okay. Um.
1: But it was, as much as I watched the X-Files, my parents would not let me watch Millennium. And from what I've seen of it since then, I don't blame them. I wouldn't have let me watch it either.
0: Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't as long-lived as the X-Files, Man, the X-Files were, were such an influential program. Yeah. Uh, so, and that was starting up, right, as you were starting to become aware of science fiction, wasn't it?
1: yeah i mean it aired the first episode of it aired in 93 and i can actually say being that kind of nerd i have a memory of watching the second episode of the show wow um sitting in front of a tv uh my brother was born in december of 93 and i think uh exile started i think in like september or october and we were in between houses we ended up in a department in huntsville for a few months um for reasons i can't quite remember but that's neither here nor there but i have a firm memory of sitting on the couch that we had in that apartment watching the scene in the second episode of the show where Mulder has sneaked onto this military base and this big flying saw you know big uf triangular ufo flies over him and then he gets captured by the military and they inject him with stuff i have a almost a clear as day memory of watching that that's cool um and it was also, I mean, I was also, as a kid, I was also, maybe because of my interest in science fiction, but I was also watching things like Sightings, which also aired on Fox. Um, that may have come out of the fact that there was this, that was the famous footage, I think it was from STS-48, uh, the famous footage of ice particles that may or may not have been UFOs in a supposed test of some kind of Star Wars defense system. And I remember that being featured on there and watching that segment. Um, But I was, I kind of got into UFOs in kind of a, and at least at an entry level way from a fairly young age, watching things like sightings and the X-Files. Cool. Um,
0: That was a a segment that I wanted to talk to you about was the UFOs hmm. and aliens. Do you want to talk about that first or you want to go back? Whatever you want, whatever you want to do. It is is your show. (laughs) Well, we're kind of all over the place because, uh, There's so many interesting topics that we can talk about, and they kind of intermingle. So Mm -hmm. it's 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 kind of hard to keep it structured because it's just so much interesting stuff. Um, Now, okay, let's since we started talking about the book, um, and the the name of your book is the Silver Archive Number Five: Dark Skies. Yes, and it's based on the TV series from the '90s, or was it the '80s?
1: The 90s. It ran from 96 to 97 on NBC.
0: Okay. Uh, And that TV series was also called Dark Skies.
1: Yes, it was.
0: What was that about? I I never saw that show.
1: So Dark Skies uh, was set in the 60s. And the whole premise of the show uh, is summed up by by a line from its opening credits, which is that history as we know it is a lie. And the premise is, is that in July 1947, an alien spacecraft did show up at Roswell. And there was a meeting between these aliens and Harry Truman, and the aliens basically demanded our unconditional surrender. And from there, a shadow, you know the Roswell incident, as we know it happened, the flying saucer was shot out of the sky, and there was the creation of this agency known as Majestic, who, if you're into UFO lore, at all you'll know if if i say the words majestic 12 you will very likely know what i'm talking about um and the whole premise of the show is that from 1947 onwards the show picking up in the picking it up in the 60s there's been a shadowy conflict between majestic on the one hand and and a race of aliens known as the hive who are this kind of ganglion like creatures who took over the greys um, their planet, which kind of their planet took them over and took over their technology, and basically Earth is next. And that since the 1960s there has been a shadowy conflict between the two, that has influenced had an influence on real events. So everything from Francis Gary Powers U two spy plane over Russia in 1960 to the JFK assassination, the Beatles' first appearance on American TV in 1964. Carl Sagan, Jack Ruby, you name it—it's all part of this conflict that supposedly went on between the two of them. So it's there's a wonderful description that I use as a chapter title in the book that was uh, from a critic uh, when the DVD set for the show came out. It is that uh, if you want to sum it up in one line, it's Mad Men for the Close Encounters set.
0: So the, you're talking about the you're referencing the, the TV series Mad Men.
1: Yeah, because they're both they're both set in the '60s, and there's a lot of there's a lot of attention to detail of getting things right in terms of hair and clothes and design, but also the historical events and kind of the wider thematic stuff of what's going on in in this decade. That starts with the show starts with JFK and the New Frontier, and it ends with Vietnam War protests and the Summer of Love and LSD.
0: So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting trajectory for the show to go on. Where could somebody go to, to watch that if, if they wanted to? Is that even it, available anymore?
1: It is. It's available on DVD. Shout Factory in 2011 did a magnificent DVD set of it, uh, which is the place, if you want to see the show, get that DVD set. Um, unfortunately, despite the best efforts of the show's creators, because the show is owned by columbia and later sony it's not streaming anywhere as of the moment but i know that um, bryce abel and brent friedman who were the show's creators have basically been waging a battle with sony to try and get them to put the show on streaming somewhere where people can see it but it is currently available on dvd all
0: right that's interesting because it sounds like a really fascinating uh, tv series but it's only was one or two seasons
1: it was one season i mean they they pitched it with this big black binder that was modeled on the majestic 12 documents and you had to break the seal on it and it had a big whole thing at the beginning about you were being read into classified information etc etc um, and they had a big five-year plan for the show and it would have it would have started in the 60s and would have gone to about 67 in that first season. It would have gone from the late 60s into the mid-70s. So 1968 to Watergate in the second season. Picked up in the mid-70s, early 80s in the third season. Done the 80s and 90s in its fourth season. And then in its fifth season, which would have been 99-2000, it would have caught up to the present day. So it would have been a whole journey. They had a plan for this whole journey through the latter half basically of the 20th century and dealing with a lot of cold war stuff along the way it sounds um, like it only one could... of
0: those it sounds like one of those shows that was probably just too far ahead of its time
1: it, it probably was i mean you know they, they they went in with a five-year plan i mean you think about the x-files that we were talking about a minute ago and the way it kind of it sputtered out because simply i think out of the fact that they didn't know where they were ever going or they kind of did, and then they went past that point, and then they basically had to make it up as they went along. And they couldn't get away with you know, get away with not contradicting themselves, which I think is, is the biggest problem with the latter-day X-Files. It's basically just become, it's become both self-involved but also self-contradictory. But they went in with a plan and basically said, we are not going to be one of those shows that you know, starts off brilliantly. And they basically go, well, we don't know where we're going to go. And instead, they basically walked in with a plan and said, We're starting here and we are going to end here. And here's some of the stuff we're hoping to do along the way. And, you know, Bryce has said that the whole point of doing the show was that they were going to tie in with all of these historical figures and events. So you do have Cold War milestones that are in there. And that first episode alone, you start with. Francis Gary Powers over, you know, chasing a, a hive ship over Russia. And Alan Dulles, who was the longtime director of the CIA in the Eisenhower and early Kennedy years, is a member of the Majestic 12 board who's controlling the agency. So he's like a reoccurring character in the show. And there's also the Cuban Missile Crisis. And of course, in the first episode, ends with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And it's a huge amount of range if you think about a show you know, just doing its opening episode, and they, yeah, they mean, they tied in, there's the third episode, which is actually the first one I saw uh, on TV in 96, was uh, the space race, they were focusing on uh, Majestic basically hijacking a NASA test launch, which actually did happen, there was a Saturn 1 launch at the end of January 1964, and they based an entire episode around it, uh, there's an episode dealing with the early days of the Vietnam War as well. And they're also dealing, I mean, Majestic as in the way it's portrayed in the show is very much a stand-in for agencies like the CIA with MKUltra and doing kind of very questionable things in the name of, you know, national security and, you know, defending the country. And, you know, it's a very interesting way to look at it. And I, there was one of the things that fascinated me about the show was it was if you drew a Venn diagram of a lot of my interests, dark skies would be in the middle of it. And when I first watched the show in 2013, I said, holy crap, somebody, how has nobody, A, a how has nobody written a book about it? But B, if nobody else is going to write the book about it, I'm going to be that person. Um, and it only took me three years and three different publishers before I found somebody crazy enough to let me do it.
0: Hmm. And what is the book about?
1: So the book is kind of, I want to say it's a critical analysis of the show, but that makes it sound like it's dry and academic. And I did absolutely everything in my power to make sure that that is not how the book reads. So it's basically an examination of the show and where it ties in with real life, whether that's the real elements of the UFO lore that's been built up, so the whole first chapter is basically taking apart how the show deals with everything from the, Majest- what, you know, the Majestic 12, Roswell, Cattle Mutilation, Black Helicopters, Secret Space Programs, you name it. Um, the second chapter sort of deals with the, the question of disinformation, because there's a really strange encounter that happens between the show's creators, Bryce and Brent, uh, the night their first episode aired and they held a, there was a big party held at bryce's house up in the hills outside los angeles and a guy showed up claiming to be from the office of naval intelligence wanting to help the show get things right cool and there's a, yeah what there's it, a whole,
0: what, what did he yeah. say what did he do
1: so it starts off at this party, and uh, the way Bryce and Brent have told it is, there was a couple hundred people at the house. Uh, it was all casting crew. You had to be invited. Uh, everybody as they came in were given a fake Majestic Twelve badge, which was uh, modeled on uh, Bob Lazar, who famously supposedly worked at uh, S Four near Area Fifty One. His badge that, of course, had been in circulation, um, and they weren't really interested in watching the show. Because they had seen the pilot, because fun, fun fact, there's two different versions of the Dark Skies pilot. Uh, for the very simple reason that uh, Steven Spielberg did not want the show to feature the men in black. Because it was around the time he was producing the Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's two different versions of the pilot, one with the men in black, one without. So they had, as I think as Brent put it to me, they had seen the both versions of the pilot about 200 times and Brent was kind of wandering around the house, sort of gauging other people's reactions. And there were TVs set up everywhere so people could watch wherever. And he went out on Bryce's back porch just to kind of have a minute during the, a commercial break just to kind of to himself. And as he put it, this sort of clean cut, mid-20s guy just kind of wanders out of the backyard and walks up to him and says, you know, we've we've seen your show and we think you're doing, you've got a lot of things right, but we think you, we could help you do more. Oh okay Um, and the two kind of strike up a conversation and at one point trying to convince Bryce who's shown up at this point and Brent as well that he is in fact genuine he gets a napkin and he writes down as they described it this weird kind of equation thing and hands it to them and Brent asks him well what's this and the guy tells him it's uh, the secrets of the universe sound light and frequency you know Hang on to this because some year, a few years from now, that's going to be in the public domain and you'll know I'm right. And, but anyway, there, there's a whole party being held and the two of them have got other things to be doing besides talking to a complete stranger who's wandered kind of into the party. Because the thing is, nobody knew who he was. He hadn't shown up with anybody. He didn't even have one of the badges. So the guy's like, we'll be in touch and just kind of, again, you know, goes into the night, You know, fades into the night just like as, as soon as he appeared almost. And he ends up calling the, the production office on the Columbia back lot. And there's a meeting that's held within the week between Bryce, Brent, the guy from the party who calls himself J.C., and J.C.'s supposed superior. Uh, who is, Bryce described it, was clean cut, military, late 40s, early 50s, kind of had an attitude of, I can't believe we have to talk to you guys, but we'll talk to you. And as they described it, they spent two hours basically spinning this entire yarn about, you know, everything that had been going on since Roswell and, you know, that the show had gotten a lot of the details right, but it had gotten so much wrong. And at one point, the, the superior officer pulls out this tube sort of vial out of his pocket full of something that looks like gold or fool's gold and sort of puts it down on the desk and goes for one thing you guys don't have this in your show and they ask the obvious question which is well what is that and the guy tells them this is why the aliens are here this is what it's all about and the aliens have been mining this on the moon for years but they've just about mined it out there so they've been moving things here to earth and that's why everybody you know why people are seeing things And we think that you guys could help get the truth out. Because if you were to believe these two guys who had shown up, who eventually said that they were from the Office of Naval Intelligence, that there had been a cover-up that had been ongoing since at least Roswell. And what basically had happened is there were these two kind of major factions controlling everything. There was a group of Air Force people called the Aviary, and there was a group of Navy people called the Aquarium. And that the aviary wanted to keep things quiet and covered up and hushed up for whatever reason, and that they were part of this aquarium group who wanted to get it out. And after the two hours was kind of over with, you know, I think the the guys apparently had sensed that Bryce and Brent still weren't 100% convinced. And they were like, okay, here's what we can do. We can read you guys into things more. There's an admiral, he's on a ship out at Long Beach, and you guys can meet with him and he can read you into things. But you can't meet him on the base. You definitely can't meet him on the ship. That would give the game away. So you'll have to meet him off the base. Okay, well, where are we going to meet him? And their response, I kid you not, was a cemetery in Long Beach at midnight.
0: Hmm. That's starting to sound a little shady to me now.
1: Uh, Exactly. And that was was exactly the point that Bryce says he pushed away from the table, stood up, and went – I have a show to run, I have a wife, I have children, I am not meeting you or anybody else in a cemetery at midnight. Good day. Um, so it's, it's just a very strange story. And I kind of come at that from the angle of the story, the stories that we've had in ufology of people like Paul Benowitz and uh, Robert Emenegger. Um, the Benowitz story, I think, has a lot of bearing on it, because for those who don't know the story of Paul, uh, Paul Benowitz, he was a World War II ve- veteran and electronics genius by all accounts, was a contractor doing electronics work for both the Air Force and NASA, and he had an interest in the subject and lived near Kirtland Air Force Base, and in the late 70s spotted that there were some strange things happening around and above the base, and became convinced it was aliens, and he shows up at the base, basically using his clout as a defense contractor, gets a meeting with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and basically goes, "I think there's an alien invasion going on with the base." And for whatever reason, the AFOSI, specifically through an agent named uh, Rick Doty, instead of taking him to instead of dismissing him outright or taking him to one side and saying it's not aliens, it's classified projects you're a veteran you were in the military we're sure you understand please don't delve into this they led him down the garden path and they spent years and eventually ensnared a whole group of people from ufology including bill moore who was one of the early investigators of roswell linda bolton howe who's a name i'm sure anybody's interested in the topic probably recognizes even today um roped all of them in into believing all kinds of really strange stuff That was supposedly going on in New Mexico, in the New Mexico desert around particularly Dulce, the infamous Dulce base of UFO lore is born out of this disinformation campaign that was aimed at particularly at Paul Benowitz, but at the wider world of ufology. And to this day, nobody can quite explain exactly why they decided that the UFO you know the UFO community was worth targeting, Um, and certainly pumping full of disinformation. And other information that was perhaps true, but of, you know, questionable sourcing, that's now become the focus of now 30 odd years of UFO lore. Yeah,
0: that's, that is a a strange and disturbing story. And if it's true, which uh, I think the part about Doty is true, but whether he was acting on his own or under orders from superiors is questionable.
1: Yeah, I, I for my money have from the research I did in the book, um, and certainly building upon Greg Bishop's work in a book called Project Beta, but also uh, the British author Mark Pilkington, his book Mirage Men, both of which I highly recommend uh, to people, along with my own book, of course. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that Doty was acting on the orders of other people, uh, but it, it raises the question of why was the UFO? What a? What were they trying to protect? Uh, but, you know, if it wasn't in fact that, there, that the U.S. government knows more than it claims about strange objects and potentially creatures from outer space, what was, wor- what was going on that was so worth protecting that they spent God knows how much money, definitely years worth of time, and drove Bill Moore out of the UFO field altogether and drove Paul Benowitz to the brink of insanity because he ended up institutionalized by the end of the 1980s as a result of being told that there was a that you know the the cattle mutilations and everything else was this harbinger of an alien invasion that was being apparently worked on alongside the United States government Um, you don't get a lot of modern ufology and a lot of particularly the UFO lore that's now entered the popular culture without looking at what was going on around Paul Benowitz and Kirtland Air Force Base in the late seventies, early eighties.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you go into depth on this on within your book? Or I, is this I go- just, is this research that you did that supports? I,
1: I dedicated an entire kind of chapter to this story because I think it has some bearing on what happened with Bryce and Brent, because the detail about them being from these guys from Naval Intelligence being from the aquarium and there being a group of air force people called the aviary uh, is interesting because Benowitz and Moore had a group of air force sources, including Doty, who called themselves the aviary. And it raises some very interesting questions about, you know, who knows what and where was dark skies being targeted uh, as part of perhaps some kind, maybe an effort at disclosure, but also a disinformation effort. Because at the exact same time that this is all going down, um, Rick Doty was working as a uh, advisor on the X-Files in its early seasons, right when it's building a lot of its fundamental stuff about UFO lore and about government disinformation and whatnot. Rick Doty is apparently, you know, advising the X-Files on what to do. So it certainly suggests that there is a possibility, and there's nothing concrete for it, at least not that I uncovered in my research, but there is the possibility that there was an effort being made to shape the popular perception of the idea of the UFO phenomenon, but also what the government does or does not know about it.
0: Do you know if Doty was active military at that time, or he was already separated from the military?
1: He retired in the late 80s, and his retirement was very well-timed, shall we say. Um, Howard Bloom in the early 90s, and Bloom is an award-winning journalist, you know, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, wrote a book called Out There, which looked at a mid-80s government investigation into the UFO field, including the whole story of Benowitz and the Majestic 12. And he spoke to the FBI sources who did the investigation on the Majestic 12 documents, and couldn't come to a conclusion about it and one of the reasons they couldn't come to a conclusion about it was that at the at about the point that they became aware of what was going on with doty and Benowitz, when they could have put used him used the fact that he was in the military to force him to be honest with his testimony that was the exact moment that doty retired from the u.s air force and as an fbi source told bloom you know, we've knocked on every door. We've gone around DC, knocking on every door we can think of to ask about these documents. And what we've discovered is the government doesn't know what it knows.
0: A lot of shady dealings going on with that story between Richard Doty and Benowitz. Yeah, and it, it does sound. I I do see a correlation with what you were talking about with the creators of Dark Skies and these so-called naval intelligence people. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, so you you and you tie that in together with your book.
1: Yeah, that's um, chapter two of the book. It's basically a there's a you know a whole like twenty page essay dedicated to taking the story apart, and looking at the at the disinformation story, the Benowitz affair, also the story of Robert Emmeriger, who um, was basically recruited by the Air Force in the early seventies to make a documentary on on this on the UFO topic, and was promised footage of a landing at Holloman Air Force Base. Um, and had the and was shown apparently part of that footage and then the air force withdrew the footage from his usage mm. um so it, it raises a whole lot of questions but it also i think gets to the, the heart of the matter which is that without the cold war without the secrecy of the cold war you don't have the modern ufo phenomenon as we understand it how you, so You don't have, I think if there, if it did not have, if whatever happened at Roswell hadn't happened in 1947, you know, it's it's post-World War II, the Cold War is already brewing. You know, Carl Sagan famously was a skeptic of the phenomenon, but towards the end of his life, Sagan, who, as we later learned, had worked on classified Air Force and NASA projects, owned up to the fact that given the way the secrecy of the Cold War and the need for secrecy and the push for weapons technology – if an alien spacecraft had fallen out of the sky it was entirely reasonable that for that world governments particularly the united states or the soviet union would have covered up the fact as well as they could have
0: so is the theory if there was no cold war and a crash recovery uh, took place <clears throat> then that would have been shared among the governments of the the world
1: it's possibility and it's it's sort of a theory i kind of developed after i was sort of done writing the book and you know i had sort of had an an interest in the phenomenon to begin with and in the whole story of roswell and the majestic 12 and whatnot but having you know did a deep dive on the topic for the book for obvious reasons you know there's no point in writing about something if you don't know what you're talking about
0: uh that that's an interesting theory and I think we'll explore that a little bit more later on. But getting back to the book, okay. uh, how did you get involved in writing the book? How did you in, get introduced to the creators and what gave you the idea to, to actually? Well, you told me that already. What gave you the idea? You just figured there should be a book about it. So you decided you were going to write it. But what were the next steps?
1: The next kind of step about it was um, really, as it were, finding somebody who was crazy enough to let me do it, and i.e., a publisher. Um, I had ch- just had my first couple of essays about Doctor Who printed in a in a book rather than just being online, so I approached the publisher of that, and that I got a it's somewhat enthusiastic email back saying we have a lot on our plate, we'll be back to you in a few months, and that was late 2013 early 2014 and to this day i've not heard a word from the publisher back on it um in the defense of that publisher they are they were a small publisher um they are still in business they are still publishing stuff but there were there were two or three major projects that they put out that they that were supposed to be imminent then that took another it took more years to come out um so i just suspect that my email basically you know got lost in the shuffle as it were I waited another year or two and I found another publisher who was based out of the UK who specialized in cult TV stuff. And I thought, okay, they published some books on some really obscure shows. So they seemed like an ideal place to go. So I got the pitch out, sort of tweaked it a bit and sent it off to them. And I got an email back in about 20 minutes, which was exciting because I thought, oh, wow, is, is it that easy to pitch a book? Um, and their email was along the lines of um, that they were actually getting out of the of printing new material. So they were going to keep their back catalog in print, um, but they were kind of getting out of publishing new stuff. And uh, as interesting as it sounded, they didn't think there was enough of an audience to justify uh, dedicating an entire book to the show. Uh, thank you for your interest, but we just don't think this is for us.
0: Well, that, and that, was, that, that was a a little bit more of a courtesy than a lot of publishers will extend to writers
1: yeah that is that is very very true um and then with obverse it happened that i i'm also a sherlock holmes fan so i had reviewed a sherlock holmes pastiche i had gotten for christmas in 2016 i think it was um as it happens that uh book was written by uh Stuart douglas who i mentioned earlier who owns obverse as their chief editor um, and I had reviewed it for a website I write for called Work Factor. And he had seen the review and quite liked it. And he actually sent me some stuff uh, that they had published for me to potentially review uh, at exactly to the point that some stuff happened and the website went on a two year hiatus. Um, so I didn't get to review any of that stuff, but I was on his radar so that when he decided that he was going to do the silver archive, I was on the email list and it's at this point I really have to credit my best friend because having gone through two different publishers and not really had any luck with it, I was just kind of convinced in my own head that there was there was no in fact no space in the world for a dark skies book. And um, my best friend talked me into it and basically went, "If you don't pitch it, you're gonna you're gonna kick yourself later if somebody else writes the book." And so I pitched it and to my surprise and delight, uh, Stuart really liked the pitch and said, I'd like to commission you to do the book. And from there, it was research at that point. I mean, I I had a fair amount of reading done already and a fair amount of knowledge, to the point that I really thought I wouldn't have to go buy anything else or delve too far into things. And then, of course, as I sat there and started writing what became the first two chapters of the book, I suddenly realized, okay, I don't know as much as I think I do. Um, you don't so, know
0: what you don't know until you, you know what you don't know. I
1: guess p- precisely, and yeah. it was it was also it was discovering the gaps in my knowledge, but also the fact that a lot of my knowledge was I don't want to say out of date, but you know my my heyday for being really interested in UFOs and delving into the topic was back in the you know throughout the nineties, early two thousands, and you know years had passed between the two. Um, So it was, it wasn't, it was to an extent catching up. Um, So I decided I wanted to fill in the gaps in my knowledge, really. So basically I spent the next year doing a lot of reading, watching, and listening um, to kind of bring myself both up to date, but also to expand, expand my knowledge. But also I found some new areas to talk about that I hadn't really thought of before especially in sort of the later chapters of the book in dealing with where the show, in fact, would have gone if it had gone to those five seasons. And it was kind of a stroke of luck that I had got, I managed to get in touch with both Bryce and Brent. Bryce had also written back, published around 2012, 2013, uh, an alternate history novel called uh, Surrounded by Enemies, about the, the premise of which was, what if JFK had, a, had survived the assassination in Dallas, if it hadn't, if he hadn't, in fact, been killed? And I had read the book, and again I'd reviewed it on Warp Factor. And Bryce had read the review, quite liked it, so much so that when the book got a second edition uh, after it won a Sideways in Time Award, um, he actually put me in touch with the publisher to get them to send me the new edition of the book. So I kind of, I had kind of had his information handy. So when the book got commissioned, uh, I emailed him and basically said. Um, I don't know if you remember me, I reviewed your book and you were, you know, very kind to put me in touch with your publisher, etc. Um, I'm writing a book about dark skies now and I would love to talk with you and potentially Brent about what it was like making the show, what you thinking was, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And he put me in touch with Brent and I sent them both an email because they were both, you know, we're busy but we would love to help. And I sent them an email basically saying, okay, I'd love to sit down and let's schedule an interview. And I heard nothing. Sent another two or three emails over the next couple of months, didn't hear a word. Um, And once again, they had said they were busy. And I just assumed, well, they've gotten busy and there's other things going on. And so I went about my research and whatnot and wrote the entire first draft of the book and sent it in mid-October 2018, I think it was.
0: How long from the start? uh of writing the book did it take you to submit first draft
1: uh it was uh 18 months from the time i was commissioned to the time i sent in the first draft um of time I actually spent writing the first month or so after i was commissioned i wrote a very long and not particularly good version of the first chapter um and I sort of paused on it for a bit to go and do research. And I also wrote a first draft of a cold war spy thriller, but we can talk about that in a bit in the meantime. Um, And then came back to the book and I worked on it from pretty much steady July, 2018 through October of 2018. So six months worth of writing basically.
0: That's pretty good. So, and was this your first, uh, first book?
1: Yeah, this was the first thing I had written a book length.
0: Wow, that's um, pretty impressive, actually. A lot of first-time writers struggle with that first draft.
1: Oh, I mean, it was, the first chapter was, well, well technically the first two chapters, because there's a, there's a parallel universe out there where this book came out, and the first two chapters are, in fact, one massive chapter. Um, and one of my beta readers, who a buddy of mine I sent the book to, came back to me and basically went, dude, this really needs to be Two chapters. <laughs> how um, long?
0: How long is the book in total?
1: The book. The this is the the funny part of the story is is that having not heard from Bryce and Brian, having went and wrote the book, the first draft I sent in was about twenty four thousand words, give or take. Um, and then I got the first draft back and the notes from. Stewart. And one of the things that had happened in the first draft was I had quoted a lot from the original pitch documents, uh, which I had managed to find online. And because I had quoted from the pitch documents so extensively, um, partly for partially for legal reasons, they felt Stewart and his fellows at Obverse felt I really needed to get in touch with Bryce and Brent to both A confirm that I was quoting from the genuine article, uh, but B also make sure it was okay with them that I was quoting so extensively from it and so i emailed bryce and bryce got back in touch with me and went um it's great to hear from you i've been waiting to hear from you for 18 months
0: (laughs) so he wasn't getting emails
1: apparently he wasn't getting the emails and me and him later sort of joked that majestic was just kind of reaching into the internet ether and just pulling them out (laughs) um just pulling them out as i was sending them um so he uh, was like, well, I know the first draft is done. Uh, you sound like you're in between things, and there was, I mean, the notes were. There were some extensive notes. It was, I was, I, I handed in what I can look back on now with the space of some time, and no, I handed in a, a quite good first draft, uh, but it wasn't quite as good as it could have been. And that was a good editor can do that is sort of point you in the direction of saying you clearly know what you're talking about, but remember, not everybody else is going to is going to. Um, but one of the things that happened is that having emailed Bryce to confirm it was real, Bryce was like, well, if you still want to sit down and talk to me and maybe talk to Brent about it, um, and we can send and see if we can dig through our archives and send you stuff, you know, we'd, we'd still be up for it. And, And it also was about this time the book got delayed, um, by about a year in terms of when it would be published. And I think this may be the rare case where a book being delayed actually improved it. Because in that time off I had, so basically February of last year, 2019, through about Thanksgiving is when I sent in the draft that got published. I talked with Bryce. I talked with Brent. I had quite a bit of correspondence uh, with Bryce in particular, as well as interviewing him and Brent both over Skype. And Bryce spent two days going through, because he had kept a lot of the documentation from the making of the show. And I got sent a Dropbox folder full of production documents and early pitch stuff and timelines and everything else. And it was just kind of like, it was, it was stuff that nobody had seen outside of the production team. Um, And the book as it now stands is actually a third longer than it was when I first sent it in because I had access to so much new material.
0: Yeah it sounds like you got a really rich and detailed cache of information from the behind the scenes at the show.
1: Yeah, I mean there was there was so much stuff I was sent that I couldn't incorporate all of it, which was which was the tragedy of it. There's stuff I would have loved to have been able to have included. But they're just in terms of both what I was what I had pitched and what I was writing and what offers was going to put out um but also word limits because i i think technically once we factored in the bibliography and the acknowledgements page and stuff i think i technically broke my max word count um for what i was supposed to do with in terms of you know the maximum word count i kind of just busted right through that um but it was certainly worth it but some of the stuff i got was just incredible um one of the things i got was they had brought in a linguist who had developed this entire language for the hive to speak so once the people got infected with the ganglions they could they would act like normal people to an extent but they would also communicate with each other speaking this language so i have saved you know on my external hard drive but also the laptop uh i'm chatting on at the moment i have the this complete dictionary of how to speak hive um i have no idea what to do with it but i have it
0: okay it seems to me like and and if I'm not mistaken, isn't Bryce trying to get a uh, the get the show back on the air for a new yeah, season? Him,
1: yeah, him and Brant have been involved in a campaign for several years now, but I think it kind of has picked up after the DVD came out from Shout Factory in twenty eleven to get a uh not necessarily even a reboot, but just a continuation of it going. Um maybe picking up in the late 60s, maybe picking it up slightly later on, um, maybe a full-fledged reboot. Um, they've got different plans, but it's because the show is owned by Columbia, and I think this is one of the big differences between American and British television. In the UK, a lot of shows are owned by the original writers and their original creators. Um, here in the US, a lot of it, virtually everything is corporately owned. You think, you know, Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek, but it's owned by CBS and Paramount. Um, in the case of Dark Skies, Bryce and Brent created it, but it's owned by what was then Columbia, and is now Sony. Um, so it's it's been a basically trying to convince Sony to let them go back and finish what they started.
0: Can they build a website to feature all of this information that you that they shared with you, but to build interest and momentum behind the show? i
1: do I've, I've done i hadn't really thought about that um i don't know if they have necessarily i know both of them are still very active writers um brent in the year since has contributed to everything from star trek enterprise to uh the star wars clone wars animated series and star wars rebels so he's been very involved with that um in fact scheduling him for an interview on skype turned out to be easier said than done because he was working on three different scripts at the same time uh bryce has stayed Busy as well. In fact, um, uh, within the last couple of months, uh, along with his wife Jackie, that him uh, they actually signed a production deal for a uh, what's looking like it's going to be a limited series about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. So you know, both of them are you know, and both Bryce and Brent are kind of very busy people. But it's it's a thought. You know, maybe I should get in touch with them and see how they feel about putting this stuff online or it may be that there, you know, there's stuff in there that if they ever got the chance to go back to it, they might want to pull from the well from. So spoilers in a roundabout sort of way, mm-hmm. but it's a definite thought. Um, I may have to get in touch with them and ask about that.
0: Um, so interesting. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to, uh, to talk about with the, uh, the production of the book and the, the publishing of the book? hmm
1: i mean i was just you know when i started writing the book my kind of philosophy going into it was based in part on what the response i had gotten from the second publisher i had, I had pitched to was i thought that the audience for the book would be about seven people um and it would be people who were both you know knew of the U- knew a lot about the ufo subject but were also dark skies fans and I figured that that had to be a pretty small audience. And what I've discovered in writing the book and since the book came out is in, um, and t- to credit Stuart Douglas, who was the editor, um, there is in fact a lot of people who, when you mentioned the UFO topic and you mentioned the word dark skies, people who don't necessarily, rem- don't necessarily know the show, but they kind of vaguely remember it. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that if nothing else, the show, you know, the book, might spur some new interest in the show and you know get people to go and explore this really this kind of hidden gem of you know mid late 90s sci-fi but also of uh pop culture how pop culture looks at the cold war for that matter because you know the hive in a roundabout sort of way uh you know is kind of an extension of kind of the, the invasion of the body snatchers and robert Heinlein's the puppet masters which are these kind of these great works of alien invasion science fiction that are kind of born out of the red scare of the early you know early late early to mid 1950s and there's even a line in one of the later episodes of the show which features um uh colin powell of you know future desert storm and uh bush administration fame or infamy depending on one's point of view and uh he gets involved with majestic at one point on a mission and the lead characters in the show explain to him how the Hive operates. And he just looks at them and goes, it sounds like communism to me.
0: Cool. And that's, that's a direct quote from the character in the TV series?
1: Yeah. It, yeah.
0: Yeah, so it does tie into the Cold War. And, I mean, it's hard to do anything from late 40s to early 90s that is not affected by the Cold War. It it just permeated our entire life, and it still affects us to this day. It does. I think one of the questions I had for you uh, about the Cold War is what, in, in your opinion, I mean, and this could spawn a whole new conversation and go on for hours if we wanted it to, but just in kind of a quick summary... Uh, what lasting effects do you feel that the Cold War has had on the world?
1: Wow, that's that's a that's a whole that's a whole another hour's worth of conversation. But um, if you if you want the short answer to that, um, I think one of the definite consequences of it has been the rise of government secrecy the world over, um, and sort of certainly you know there is a ground, there is legitimate grounds for national security and for state secrets. Um, that certainly are, are concepts that existed before the Cold War rolled around. But what I think is a, one of the things that's a direct result of the Cold War is that we ended up with the establishment of what, you know, people like Richard Dolan and others have termed the sort of the national security state. And the idea that if you, anything and everything can be cloaked behind the words, need to know, top secret, national security, and the best interests of the nation, etc., and I think what's happened since the 90s, since the end of the Cold War, with the revelation of things like Venona, which was this multi-decade NSA project to take apart uh, these just sort of um, intercepted Soviet communications, which ended up revealing a huge amount of information about what who who was and was not spying for the Russians, at least in the early days of the Cold War. And you also look at things like, you know, human experimentation be it mk ultra be it soldiers exposed to nuclear testing or you know members of the unsuspecting members of the public who were subjected to germ warfare experiments for example um and indeed if you know we talk about the ufo subject as well as i said earlier you don't get the modern perception of the ufo phenomenon without the cold war and without the secrecy of the cold war because whether it's disinformation uh, as we talked about with Benowitz whether it's a cover-up and I think that anybody who spends spends more than a modicum of time looking at the documentary evidence that we have that's been declassified on this topic from the Air Force the CIA you can name any other number of three-lettered agencies you know there's been a there was an effort made to hide what the government knew, or indeed the lack of what the government knew about this topic. And I think that all of that are the lingering effects of the Cold War. And indeed, as we've been watching over the last three years with ATIP, which was this uh, more recently a Pentagon project examining the UFO question amongst other topics, and the layers of secrecy that were built around that, all of that,
0: I think, is a legacy of the Cold War.
1: And we're still very much living with it in dealing with the questions of national security.
0: Okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, excellent, excellent answer, by the way. But um,
1: a very serious answer, I suspect.
0: No, uh, but but uh, but an excellent answer, nonetheless. And you're absolutely right that that could easily be another hour, and and a topic for a whole other show. If um, I might just have to invite you back on here in a couple of weeks to do another show and talk about that specifically.
1: I would be up for that too. Awesome.
0: Sure. Awesome. Okay. Well, stand by. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's go back and, Oh, okay. First of all, um, you answered all the questions about the book that I had. Is there anything else about the, the, uh, the book that you would like to mention? Number one, how can people get it?
1: Well, if you're interested enough to track down the book, um, you can buy it directly from Obverse, um, either as an uh, either as an ebook or in paperback. Um, obversebooks.co.uk, I believe. Um, if because they're based in the UK, if you want a paperback copy of the book um, and you're in the US, the cheapest place to actually get it, um, thanks to Amazon's distribution things not being exactly good for small publishers let alone internationally small publishers uh you can actually buy the book on lulu uh you can actually stick my name matthew kressel dark skies into the lulu search engine and it'll take you right to it um if you're in the u.s and you want the paperback buy it from lulu um if you want the ebook um or you don't mind paying a little bit for international shipping you can buy it straight from opverse
0: okay. Okay great. How long has the book been out?
1: Uh, it came out um, April the 10th so it's okay, been out cool. uh, just under four months.
0: Well congrats on uh, the first publication of your first book That's Thank a huge you. that's a huge uh, kudos uh, So we're gonna close it out uh, in a couple of minutes but um, I want to hit on the UFO and alien topic just a little bit more before I let you go. What do you think crashed at Roswell?
1: Something out of the ordinary fell out of the sky there. Um, The question for the question remains what fell, what it was. And I have to say at the end of my research, having dealt with alien spacecraft with Nazi flying wing bombers sent over from the Soviet union, uh, you know, Nazi flying wings being flown by captured Japanese people from World War II, Mughal weather balloons, V 2 rockets, etc. etc. I have to say, at the end of all that, alien spacecraft is not the craziest thing I came across.
0: I'm reading a book right now called Witness to Roswell. Yes. Have you read that book? I have. Okay. That book has me convinced that it was alien spacecraft.
1: I mean there's just there's you know you look at the stack of witnesses you look at the behavior of the US military during and after the event um there's so much strangeness around it um and I know if you haven't uh, Nick Redfern's two books it's on Roswell Body Snatchers of the Desert and the Roswell UFO Conspiracy are worth checking out as well Nick Redfern has his own solution he thinks it was a combination of captured access to te- access technology uh that we were experimenting with combined with uh victims of japan's unit 731 who had done all kinds of biological
0: weapons and mutilation and
1: everything else
0: okay with without reading the book without reading the book i i really the the only the main thing that convinced me from this book witness to roswell is that the government didn't respond to the a crash until two or three days later when, when they were notified by a civilian if it had anything to do if it was any kind of test by the government they would have they would have known about it period so that's that's why i'm convinced it was something not of this earth
1: well i mean they were launching weather balloons and stuff from roswell from the base at roswell all the time and you know Jesse Marcel and the others who went out to the you know went out to the, all the wreckage that Mac Brazel had had experience with airplane wreckage. They had seen bits and pieces of V two rocket. They knew anything and everything that this thing was supposed to be,
0: and they didn't know what it was. We are in total agreement on that because that that book just lays it out so succinctly and clear. It, it's hard to argue with those facts and the witness testimony
1: the sheer amount of witness testimony at this point as well. And it's just kind of like people are like, well, it's only a handful of people. And it's like, that's the other thing when I was researching the book, I I had some conversations with friends of mine who were skeptical about it. And you suddenly remind them that there's, you know, they have no idea that I don't know if this is the fault of the authors or their publishing company, or just that the media doesn't want to pick, didn't pick the story up and run with it. People don't know that there's an entire book full of dozens of witnesses. Hundreds. Most of them are ex-military
0: there's literally hundreds of witnesses, and yeah, ex-military, but members of the families. so there's just there's just too much evidence that it was something the military knew nothing about, and if it was not something by the military, then what was it?
1: exactly and that that only leaves so many alternatives at that point.
0: so I wouldn't call myself like a serious UFO researcher, but over the last, since I started my podcast, which was only a few months ago. And prior to that, I guess since 2017 is when I got a little bit more serious about the topic and looking into it and watching documentaries. So I'm relatively new. You seem to be a lot more, a lot more well-versed on the topic.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's something that it's a, it's a rabbit hole. That's very easy to fall down.
0: Definitely. Yeah. That's and a good I, way to put and, it. and
1: you know, the, the big problem with dealing with this topic is, is that there's so much, there's a, there's so much disinformation out there. Part of it's, you know, di- deliberate disinformation. Part of it is opportunistic hoaxers uh, who have thrown stuff out there and it's just happened to catch on. Um, it's, it's, Sifting the wheat from the from the chaff and the nonsense.
0: Yeah, that's and the hard part. You know, you mentioned uh, Richard Dolan, whose work, in my opinion, is, is impeccable. He's mm. a he's a very rigorous researcher. Um, I've got one of his books, AD After yes. Disclosure. I have all I haven't read it yet, but I'm that's oh, the next book. Read on it.
1: My... Read it. That okay. that book is actually part of why I ended up writing the Dark Skies book because that introduced me back to the series. Um, I picked it up in 2013. Um, at the time, I was I was working a fast food job. I was living with my grandmother then, and one of the things I would do because she was in her 70s and doesn't drive is I would uh, take her shopping, and she would go into various stores in the shopping center that had a Barnes and Noble attached to it. And I actually walked into the Barden's Noble one day and the book was sitting on the shelf. And I went, well, this sounds interesting. So I picked it up and it had the intention of, you know, sitting down in the chair and browsing through the first 20 pages or so. And I was so engrossed in the book that I actually bought it before I could leave the store. I was not leaving the store without that book. Uh, But the book is co-written by Bryce Abel, who co-created Dark Skies. And he references the show in a couple in, in a few places in there. And by the time I had finished reading the book, and it took me, it, it didn't take me that long to read it. Unfortunately, I was busy with other things, you know, work and essay writing and everything else at that point. So it took me a couple of weeks to read it. But by the time it was over with, I went, I have to watch this show. Um so A D after disclosure is inadvertently the whole reason I got back it. I tracked down Dark Skies, which I had a limited knowledge of and had seen two or three episodes of. Mm-hmm.
0: That's cool. That's that I didn't even mean to go that direction with it, but that's a that's a cool anecdote about that book. The reason I mentioned uh Richard Dolan to begin with is because um the the whole concept of disinformation is something that Dolan is adamantly against he hates disinformation and yeah. I do too I feel like it's something that it should be criminal it should be criminal if if it's if it's found out that the government is passing disinformation and it's proven there should be consequences for that
1: there ought to be I mean it, it amazes me that nobody went to jail over what happened to Paul Benowitz. You know, this is a guy whose this is a guy whose life and career was ruined by a systematic, carefully thought out effort by his own government and and the military that he had once served in. And nobody was prosecuted. As far as we can tell, a handful of people were wrapped over the knuckles. Yes, Rick Doty retired. But where is Rick Doty today? Rick Doty is out promoting that yes, I did this, but I actually know some of the truth about it. And you know, selling books to people and speaking at UFO events and going on people's radio shows and podcasts. Um but I think that they would justify that, you know, as I was talking about earlier, they would justify it under the grounds of national security. That it was it was the same way that the, some of the doctors and stuff who were involved with MK Ultra did.
0: I think there needs to be a distinction between protecting national security and disseminating Disinformation,
1: or actively harming people. I mean, you, yeah, you you get no argument from me there, dude. You get no argument from me there.
0: Fact or fiction, Majestic Twelve?
1: Fact, to at least a certain extent.
0: Okay, okay, we'll explore that a little bit more in a future episode, if that's cool with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because there is a lot of evidence against Majestic Twelve, and there are a lot of very good researchers who totally debunk majestic 12
1: yeah and there's also a lot who believe it the other way and that's I, true for yeah and for me and we'll, we can talk about this in the future for me the truth is somewhere in the middle between okay. the two
0: and for me i don't have enough information to even make an opinion i i need to delve into that a lot more deeply before i can make an opinion
1: for what it's worth, I don't know if anybody's necessarily got enough information <laughs> okay. to make an informed opinion. Okay, fair but,
0: enough, fair enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but t- but pe- people have anyways for uh, 30-odd years now.
0: Rendlesham incident.
1: To the extent, uh, as with Roswell, something happened. But whether it was, I think the evidence certainly is strong that there was something unusual in those woods. Um I would tend to lean towards the extraterrestrial explanation for that simply because the alternatives, you know, whether it's lighthouses or the British SAS or most recently, Nick Redfern fell uh, throughout um, mind control experimentation. Uh, yeah, it's sort of using an inverted versions of Occam's razor here. It's one of those cases where alien spacecraft is the easiest explanation.
0: Okay. Uh, Kexburg incident.
1: I don't necessarily think it was a flying saucer that was an alien spacecraft. Um, I think there's a there's circumstantial evidence of some kind of satellite falling out of the sky, whether it was okay. Russian or maybe the U.S. or U.S. That's that's a question, particularly since we know that the CIA was running various early spy satellite projects at that point.
0: Yeah, I, I did see a documentary uh, that suggested that it was a satellite and. It was, they showed some pretty compelling um, evidence of that. But there, there's also there's also an interesting theory that it could have been... Uh, this, this one's a little bit out there, but it's certainly the most interesting. The Nazi bell. I was
1: about to mention that because of, of all the solutions I've heard for Kecksburg, that's the one I buy the least. That The Nazis were experimenting with things like the uh, D- D- Glock, the bell, um i don't think there's you know there's enough circumstantial evidence to say that the nazis were certainly interested interested in and experimenting with some very advanced technology from the 1940s um i don't necessarily believe that they got the stuff functioning let alone as i think was presented on an episode of of history's ancient aliens that the thing somehow managed to time travel 20 years into the future with some nazi bigwig on board
0: well, cool. Um, so I'm going to wrap this up a little bit. And All right. uh, I mean, I, I would love to sit here and talk to you for another two hours, but we'll save that for another episode. All right. Um, so with that said, uh, do you have any final thoughts before uh, we end this? Final thoughts.
1: I suppose, as, as I said, that in sort of writing the book, it was sort of a crash course in a way, both a refresher course in the history of the Cold War, but also how the Cold War intermingles with the UFO subject and through things like Dark Skies, also the way that we look at both UFOs as a topic, but also the Cold War as a topic through pop culture and how, mu- how very much you don't get one without the other. Um, for people who are fans of science fiction, if you're interested in Cold War era Uh, more in fiction, Dark Skies is well worth checking out. And certainly uh, Bryce on Twitter the other day described my book as the perfect compliment to the series. And I can think of no higher endorsement than that.
0: Absolutely. That is a huge endorsement. Uh, Now, if anybody was interested in getting in contact with you, I had a tough time finding information about you, but are you you available for people to talk to? Oh, yes. And how could they reach out to you?
1: Uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook. Uh, I have a page on there, facebook.com uh, slash Kressel Uh my last name and the word writes. And I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, my Twitter handle is at
0: Okay. And the website, y- you write for several websites. Do you have one that you uh, call your own?
1: I I have a live journal blog I've kept since about 2009 uh, that I occasionally still post stuff on. It's the closest thing that I have to my actual website. Um, the site I write for primarily these days is, I mentioned earlier, is Warp Factor. Uh, so warpfactor.com, and I cover all kinds of pop culture stuff on there as well. So that's, that's one side of my writing at least.
0: I saw that you do a lot of reviews and, and breakdowns of different things, uh, different TV series and and different books and things like that on that, that that's one I did find um, where you contributed to quite a bit. Uh, It also looks like you have some entries on Goodreads, your Goodreads profile. Looks like you keep a blog there.
1: Yeah. uh, I think the Goodreads blog is linked to my live journal one. So that's, um, yeah, uh Tim Dalton dot com is the address for that one. Very cool. So I am a I am a James Bond fan and Timothy Dalton's my favorite Bond. So
0: Yeah, uh I like James Bond too. That's um that's one of the British uh forms of entertainment that I do like.
1: Fleming himself, of course, had served in intelligence in World War II, but those books are very much informed by the early Cold War. Yeah. Um it's not a coincidence that the first Bond novel, Casino Royale, is written just months after uh, Guy Burgess and Donald Maclean defected to the Soviet Union from the UK, having been spying since the 1930s. I don't think that's a, that's not a coincidence whatsoever.
0: Well, with that, we're gonna call this uh, call this episode done. And, uh, we're definitely going to have another conversation at a later date, as long as you're up for it. Oh yes. All right, my friend. Well, with that, I will let you go and we'll talk again soon.
1: All right. Thank you very much again for having me and looking forward to hearing from some people, hopefully.
0: Yeah. I hope so too. Yeah. If, uh, if anybody's interested in your book, I hope they buy it. I'm certainly going to go get a copy of it as soon as I could track it down. Hmm. And, um, Yeah, I look forward to talking to you again soon, Matt. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you very much for having me. All
0: right, take care now. You too. Dead Hand Radio is a podcast about the Cold War, its history, and the effects it had on our culture, technology, and the future of our world. My goal is to examine these and other topics to learn, to educate, to entertain, and exchange ideas with those interested. So join me and together we'll explore a fascinating period of history and examine some incredible advancements in weapons, technology, science, art, and culture and discuss how all of it relates to the future of our world. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on this program, drop me an email or visit deadhandradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm Andrew Hall, and this is Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening.